The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. In writing, there is a saying that if you are trying to figure out what to write about, you should write about what you know. In photography, it's something similar. It's, it's suggested that you photograph about what you're passionate about. But what happens when the subject that you're being drawn to touches on grief, loss, and pain? This is the path that today's guest, Tracy Barber, chose to walk following the death of her brother. This led her to begin what she has called the Grief and Grace Project, where she documents the lives of people who have or are facing some of life's toughest challenges. It's a collaboration between photographer and subject, which demands a lot of both. And it also shows how a photographer can move through pain to create something moving and beautiful. Well, Tracy, welcome to The Candid Frame. It's a pleasure to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. I, I, I want to get started with how you began as a photographer, because I know you're from Nebraska, and mm -hmm. you picked up photography from your dad. Yes, I did. I did. Um, my dad was a hobbyist photographer. Okay. And um, I was nine years old. Um, we were, he, he, of course, shot film, obviously, um, and nine years old, and we were looking at and, and following the migration of the Sandhills cranes. And my dad was trying to get very close to them. And I was, you know, small and quiet. Uh, and so he handed me his camera. And I just pretty much fell in love from that point. Um, always took the opportunity, was always asking my parents for film and cameras and taking pictures of my friends, you know, um, even at a young age, uh, doing a lot of traveling. My parents traveled a lot during the summer being that they were educators during the school year. Mm -hmm. And my mom was very artistic too. So they really encouraged it and uh, just entered a lot of photography contests. And when I was 12, that was one of the biggest contests I entered. Uh, and that's pretty much how I got started. And that continued on into college. I, I didn't major in photography, but it continued on being uh, a journalist for a college newspaper. You know, you know, when you pick up anything, be it photography or a sport or some activity when you're that age, it can be a really sort of defining thing. Not so much because you're doing it, but because of a certain feeling it gives you. Can you yeah. sort of put your finger on what that what that special thing was about the photography beyond, you know, just simply making pictures that you found really appealed to you and that maybe sort of helped you later on in life as you became more and more active, sort of cemented that this is this is a real big reason why you love seeing through a camera and making photographs. I think for me it was because being that you know, I, I'm adopted. Um, I was adopted when I was six years old, so I had this whole life before I came to my parents. And I was always sort of in my own head all the time. And I struggled with communicating with people what was going on inside my head. 
And for me, picking up the camera and being able to use this box, you know, for me, it was kind of magic that I could then communicate with people the things that were going inside on inside my head. I always saw everything from sort of an observing standpoint and looking out at the world and sort of like a, a moving picture at the same time and, and framing things up from a very young age. And this was my way of communicating that to other people. And I was finally able to, without using words, able to communicate who I was and what I was seeing and how I was experiencing the world and, and sharing that with other people. How, how old were you when you were adopted? I was six. And what were the circumstances before? Had you been in several households before? Yes, I had. I had. I actually lived with my biological mother till I was four. Mm-hmm. And then I was in a group home and then a foster home. Oh, man, that must have been really tough at that, especially at that age. It was. It was. There's a lot of things that I don't and do remember. Uh, it was tough. But, you know, coming to my parents and, and being adopted the way that I was, at, you know, six is kind of much older to be adopted. Um, they really worked with me and really brought out art was a huge part of our household mm-hmm. and culture. And I think it just kind of brought me out of that shell that I had been in because of my previous, you know, experiences in my formative years. When you when you won those contests, uh, that must have been really affirming for you in a it, way that I think... It uh, was. It, yeah, it was. It was, um, for me, I, I always kind of felt like because I'd been in my own head and because I was doing photography, which living in a small town, that's really the focus, quite frankly, was sports and people who are athletes. And here I was not an athlete. Right. I was artistic. And um, for me, it was affirming because it proved that I too could accomplish something um, using the skills that I had, using the talent that I had. And w- when was it then you started thinking that photography could be more than just sort of a, a passive creative outlet, that it could be most, something more? That actually did not happen until 2005. (laughs) I spent this whole time, you know, working with my dad and kind of being a hobbyist and and being a photojournalist in college. For some reason, I put the camera down for a long time. And then in 2005, something just clicked. I'm not really sure what it was, but I took a, a Photoshop class and it just clicked for me. And I was heavily involved at the time in music and with bands and things like that. And something about that at that point clicked so well, it was just a sort of magic uh, moment for me. And that's what influenced me to say, okay, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. You've had, you had a, a stint in the military. When, when does that fit in? Um, that was actually right prior to becoming a photographer professionally. Uh, I did have a stint in the military. I was injured quite severely. Um, ended up getting a medical discharge, um, had a really tough time kind of integrating back into civilian life and dealing with the injury that I had. And, and kind of what part of that moving into photography was, was also once again, that ability to give a voice to what I was feeling. It was sort of a form of therapy and then getting involved with music and that type of thing. And like, I can do not only do this for myself, mm-hmm. but I can do this as a career. What led you to to choose a career in the, uh, in the military initially? My entire family had been military, so um, everybody but my dad, um, my adopted family. Uh, you know, I had a grandfather who was in the army, another grandfather who was in the navy, uncles who were uh, in the Marines in Vietnam. My brother was a Marine, 
So um, I became fascinated with the military from an early age, like junior year mm-hmm. of high school. And I just, once the Iraq war started, um, it was kind of this call of, I need to go do something. I need to do something to help. I need to do something to help other people. Uh, my entire family had done this. And for me, it was uh, it's important that I also contribute to that. When you were wounded and, and you realized that you wouldn't be able to continue in, in the military, was that a real disrupt, disruptive time for you? That Did you have, it was. had you had a sort of an expectation that this was going to be a bigger part of your life and all of a sudden that whole idea was sort of shut down? What was, what was that about? Yeah, what was, was that like? It was uh, devastating. It honestly was devastating. It was, I was in the hospital and I kept being in the hospital and um, I was actually in a wheelchair for a while and I was on large doses of morphine for the pain and the day that I realized that I was going to go home, that I could not stay, was devastating. And it was a very tough decision to say, to kind of give in to that and say, okay, I did this. I tried it. Um, I felt very weak. I felt that I had failed. And it was the first major sort of fearful trial mm-hmm. that I'd ever gone through where I didn't know what was going to happen next. When you say that you, you felt you failed, did you feel like you had failed yourself, failed your family? Who, who did you think you were failing? I think I mostly felt like I failed myself. I think that was the biggest thing. My family, my family was very supportive, um, but at the same time to them, what was most important is that I, I get home safe and I was well. Uh, but me, I felt like I had failed myself. I felt like I had planned to do this for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And what was I going to do next? And, and, and was I, you know, how was I going to come to grips with my own failure? You know, that, 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 that's a situation that can send you into really deep depression. And a lot of people have a hard time getting out of it. And especially when it comes to veterans, they can turn to, you know, alcohol or drugs or other things in order, you know, to sort of cope with it. Um, what do you think helped you to pull yourself out of that and, and, and eventually thrive again? Family support. Number one, um, my parents are salt of the earth. And uh, after I got out, I kind of traveled for a little bit. I helped some people who had also gotten out who were in the military. And I I came back home. And my parents welcomed me with open arms. And they were there every step of the way in my, you know, in my recovery. And encouraged me to do whatever I needed to do to get better. And whatever I needed to do to feel like I was productive. Tell me about the moment, uh, especially with in relation to the camera, where you felt like you had sort of reclaimed a part of yourself in a way i think that moment came honestly you know i was i was using the camera i was taking photos i was in school back in school studying art and i'd been asked to come and shoot an album cover and i'd been asked to come and shoot concerts and things like that and it was great like i was getting paid and people were noticing what i was doing and that was great but the moment that I realized that this was it wasn't even when I had a camera in my hands. I was actually in school and I had been missed a lot of class because I'd gone off and I was like shooting all these concerts. Um, and my instructor said to me, I don't understand why you're here Hmm. because you're already doing what anybody in your position would be dreaming to do. You've already made it. You don't need this. And that was the moment that I realized that 
I really didn't have anything else to prove that I could just, the sky was the limit and that, and the tool and, you know, the medium and, and the catalyst for it was that I had this camera in my hands and I had an ability to tell stories that it was more than just pretty picture taking, that I was telling stories that was getting to know at the time, you know, music photography, getting to know these bands, getting to know these musicians, their families, their lives, everything about their music had already reached that. And that was the moment that I realized that I could just, this, this would be the forever. That's really interesting. Cause I think when a lot of people think about music photography, they think of sort of the iconic picture of a person performing on stage, you know, beautifully mm -hmm. lit, you know, in the, in the midst of doing this incredible guitar riff or just belting it into a microphone. But can you give me an example of maybe a, a story or a series of images that you did that really reflect the storytelling aspect that you're, you're talking about? Yes. So I worked a lot with local bands in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, that was what I, where I started. And the, these bands would ask me to come and do album covers or ask me to come and photograph um, their concerts. And I really got to know them. And then it got moved into, they were asking me to come to rehearsals. And that's kind of where the documentation began. Mm -hmm. uh, I would shoot black and white. And I would photograph these rehearsals. And then I started going with the bands to, you know, if they were on the radio, I would go with them to do that. And I would just be documenting not just what was going on on stage, all that prep, all that hard work that goes into those iconic moments and getting to be a part of all of that uh, and knowing what led up to why were they on stage? And I worked with one particular band. Um, they're not around anymore, um, but their name was Flurry. They were a punk band in Omaha. And they were the main ones that kept inviting me to rehearsals. And I got to know everybody. As a matter of fact, they lived at one point like a block away from me, the oh, house. Okay. The guys all lived together. And so I started traveling with them and, and going to all their concerts. And it even got to the point where they would have a, you know, a, a big concert and I'd walk into the venue and I was the exclusive photographer. Nobody else was allowed. And the lighting guy would come up to me and say, you know what? The band said, whatever you need for lighting, they'll work with it. What do you need to make these photographs? That's great. That's rare. But that's wonderful. It was it was an amazing experience. It really was. The, the, I spent about two, two and a half years being just a music photographer and uh, having that trust. Not only that, but there were other bands, uh, local bands who it's not often you see a photographer on stage with a band, mm -hmm. but I was on stage. <laughs> I was on stage. I was standing on drum kits, getting the photos I needed. I almost became part of the show. Uh, bands would introduce me to the audience. Uh, I, I, I was it that I had, they, they gave me a nickname. I hated it. But they gave me a nickname and it stuck. <laughs> Which is? And, oh, I was called the photo queen. The photo queen, um, okay. Yes. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm actually pretty tiny. I'm only like 4'9". Oh, wow, okay. And, and so um, seeing this, you know, this tiny 4'9 person with this huge DSLR on stage, standing on drum kit, sort of being part of the show was an interesting sight to see. Do you think it was an advantage, too? I think it was. I do. How, how so? Definitely. I think that I wasn't pushy. And I also was very, very interested in more than just capturing those iconic photos and selling them. I wanted to know the stories. I wanted to know, why are these people making music? Why are they doing what they are doing? And also being a woman, I think I felt less sort of 
I don't want to say threatening. There's probably a better word. Mm-hmm. Uh, I felt, I think they felt like I was sort of nurturing, that I, I, I truly cared about what they were doing and was just as passionate about what they were doing and what I was doing that it, it just, we were like a team. Okay. Were, the, were these bands a little younger than you or about the same age? Same age. Same age. But did you find that the fact that you'd had, you know, some probably some interesting life experiences up to that date, you know, and sort of provide you a level of maturity that was that was helpful? I think so. I definitely think so. I've always been told that because of my life experiences, you know, I look super young. I'm really tiny, but people can tell right away when I step into working with someone professionally, they know immediately there's experience behind it that uh, there's a maturity behind it. And I'm going to handle myself in such a way that's exceptionally professional and really protecting my client and really protecting my subject. Uh, And I really think that 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 was a big part of it. They felt like I was, because they were the same age, Mm -hmm. um, and they had the same dreams, and they were trying to accomplish the same things, essentially, you know, they felt that I was on the same level with them. So how did you sort of come to figure out what you needed to do in order to earn a a living? Because a lot of people, you know, photograph, you know, musicians and the music scene, but, you know, it's notorious for not being very welcoming for photographers who are trying to earn a living from it. The number one thing that I really stressed to the bands, because at first, yes, I was shooting. Obviously, I was shooting for free, but it got to the point that I was shooting so much and I was shooting the photographs that I was shooting. They were very personal and it was storytelling and it was bringing out the absolute best in each band and what they were doing. It really got to the point where they were like, well, we really need to pay you. And I'm like, okay, this is what you need to pay me. And they were, okay, that's fair. Because, you know, bands need to get paid too. Mm -hmm. And I understood that. And they understood that I needed to make a living. If they really wanted me to stick around and they really wanted this type of press and they really wanted these types of images, that I would need to get paid. And we just kind of came to an agreement at that point. You know, I did things like um, sort of study resources to figure out, okay, what exactly do I need to be charging people? But um, it really was honestly... Once I kind of broke away from that portfolio building Mm -hmm. into making a living, um, it was bands and musicians saying, we need to pay you. What do you need from us? And when you started, how how did you start marketing your work outside of the, you know, your relationship with the, with the bands directly? Were you sort of licensing your images elsewhere? No, no, I really wasn't. It was strictly word of mouth. It was, it was, I was making a living off of, shooting bands Mm -hmm. and um, I worked for uh, a media company as a freelancer as well and basically what would happen is I worked as a freelancer I would travel and tour and then the media company would sell the images and then I would get the money Um, but they took care of all of that Um, and then I started building relationships with record companies small labels and they would call and say hey we need to shoot how much do you need for this what's your quote um, and I'd give a quote and then I would shoot with the band. I didn't really license any of the images. It strictly was based off of me coming to shoot promos, album covers, doing, you know, album cover art, that type of thing. Um, and then that rolled into, um, I actually had a studio. I started a studio in my home mm-hmm. and of course bands end up you know, musicians get married and have children and, <laughs> and so I was shooting 
not only these bands, but then I started shooting their families and I started shooting, you know, if they would get married, I'd be their wedding photographer. And so it was strictly that sort of flow of word of mouth that I was the preferred photographer. I was the, the person that knew them best. Right. But at some point, you know, you were doing that work for a while, but at some point you, you had this pull to do more documentary work. Tell me about when you kind of realized that that's where you were being led to and how did you find a way to be able to do that? That was really tough because I, I'm not really sure to pinpoint exactly when, when it started happening. Uh, it was kind of a very slow progression to documentary work because I was shooting portraits. Mm-hmm. But my portraits were getting to be more and more of a documentary style, less of sort of that classic or lifestyle type. It was, it was more raw. And as I was shooting those portraits and they were very raw and emotional because I would sit down with people and it wasn't just a matter of having a photo shoot here, show up at my studio or show up at the location for an hour and I'll I'll photograph you. I was actually taking time before the photo shoot to have a pre-consultation to get to know the person. And that lends to that documentary style. And then around 2012, 2011, 2012, I actually quit shooting for a year. Hmm. Um, I I just felt sort of stuck and I didn't know where I was going. I knew that I was shooting portraits and it was more of a documentary style and people were starting to recognize that. But I didn't really have any mentors or anybody to kind of show me the ropes. I had done everything on my own up until that point. And so I quit shooting and then one day I just woke up and I was like, hey, I, I, I really need to shoot. And so I just started asking people if I could just show up at, you know, events. And for some reason, even at events or um, with my friends, I started shooting and it just evolved into that documentary. And then people started seeing that. And, and then documentary, you know, it's, it's slowly documentary has become more and more popular. What, what do you think that year without shooting gave you? I think it gave me an opportunity to not be burnt out. I think that even as someone who's very passionate about what they do, anybody who has a craft, whether it be a photographer, an artist, a musician, there is always a chance you can burn out, especially someone like me. Because when I started um, being a photographer, I rose pretty quickly locally where I was at, you know, sort of the big fish in the little pond. And it happened so fast. And this was before social media. Mm-hmm. And so taking that year, I could kind of emotionally and physically gather myself back up and not be burnt out and not the photography industry is tough and it's constantly changing and, and not be burnt out on the industry and not be burnt out on what I was doing and be able to continue to create and constantly reinvent myself. Tell us about the grief and grace project. How did that start? So, um, in 2013, uh, my younger brother, he was 36 years old he died of a ruptured brain aneurysm. It was sudden. It was something no one expected. As a matter of fact, I hadn't even spoken to my brother in a couple of years. So it was pretty devastating to my entire family. I just, I didn't know how to deal with it. I had absolutely no idea how to deal with it. And the only thing I ever knew how to deal with anything was always through my work, was always through photography. During that time, a friend of mine who had been more of an acquaintance, you know, sort of in the photography industry in Houston. She was a hobbyist photographer. I had known her through like Flickr groups and, you know, Twitter meetups and things like that. Also um, had a ruptured brain aneurysm, but she survived. And she actually ended up making 100% recovery, which is unusual. 
And so I reached out to her because I had not had the opportunity to be there with what was going on with my brother. And for me, this was an opportunity to see what someone was going through and uh, who had gone through the same thing as him, but survived. And she fortunately, and her family fortunately, was very agreeable to talking to me about the experience. And then she was in a situation where she really felt like she didn't know if she wanted to live. She didn't know if she wanted to have the rest of the aneurysms clipped. She didn't know it was devastating to her. And I said, hey, let's do this. Let's have a photo shoot. Let's, let's show your scars for what they are and take you to a place that you find comforting and soothing. And it'll be just you and me, you and me in front of the camera, just talking. We did it. And the resulting images, she said they, that for her was a turning point. And it really helped her realize that she had a lot going for her and she needed to continue on. Mm. So we, I ended up publishing the images in the story. Uh, and that led to a woman from New York contacting, contacting me. Her name is Pamela. She had glioblastoma. She was terminal and asked me to come to New York and spend a couple of days with her documenting her life. She knew she was going to die. And I said, okay. And it was kind of the same experience. And for me, it was healing as well because I could be there and sort of give these people and their families tangible evidence of the life that they had led. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, to my understanding, uh, the, one of the reasons that you weren't able to be there with your brother is because you guys were estranged. Mm -hmm. If it isn't too personal, can you explain what the circumstances were? It just was my brother was, um, my brother had always been sort of deeply troubled and his whole life. And he had been in prison and he had been an alcoholic and he had been through rehab several times. And it just got to the point for me being his older sister, I needed to step away. Okay. So when he, when he passed away, um, provided a whole set of mixed feelings. Cause I have, I have a family member who has both mental illness and, and, and has dealt with drug issues. There are times where I feel a combination of anger and guilt and shame about all the stuff that not only he's gone through and I've gone through, but just collectively as a family have gone through. And I can only imagine what what you, you must have felt when he passed away suddenly. Can you tell me a little about, you know, what your feelings were like at that time and how this project sort of helped you to come to terms with them? Yeah, um, guilt, tons of guilt, uh, enormous, uh, overwhelming, earth-shattering, literally put me in bed for days crying kind of guilt. I felt like I could have been there. I felt like maybe there were signs that I'd missed because we were estranged. We weren't talking to each other. There were things that, you know, I could have done. And so doing this project was a way of giving back to him, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm the things that I, I didn't give, the things that I wasn't able to give because he wasn't in a place to accept it and I wasn't in a place to give it. So doing this project, I could use my gifts that I have and my talent for photography and my passion for it to help others heal, which I couldn't do with him. Yeah. And I think for me, um, it was more of affecting other people, being able to help other people, being able to have those people come to terms with their own situations was healing for me and helped me come to terms with my own guilt and my own shame. Mm -hmm. 
you explain these circumstances to the people that you asked to to, to photograph. Uh, and do you think that that was one of the big reasons they they decided to trust you? Definitely. I'm I'm very open. I'm very open with my subjects and the people that I photograph uh, about my life and my situations and why I tell the stories that I do and about my passion for what I do and the catalyst behind it. And I think that I'm a very honest and genuine person and people get a sense for that and they feel safe and they feel nurtured. Not like I'm just like some photographer who just wants to stick a camera in their face. Mm -hmm. You know, it's more than that for me. And they feel a connection with that. As you were becoming really involved in these people's lives, photographing them, you know, and documenting them in different stages in terms of what they were contending with. Did being immersed in other people's lives give you sort of a new understanding or appreciation for what your brother must have been going through? And did that help you? I I think that it did um, in a way, but I think it mostly, I think it actually kind of transcended that. I think that it, it went beyond being able to understand what my brother went through. It, it went into being understand, being able to understand human beings as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it took me to a place of, you know, how, especially with everything the world's going through right now, <laughs> um, we sort of tend to lose our faith in each other and we tend to lose our faith in humanity. And I, I think that I was kind of getting to that point. But doing that project and being a part of these people's lives restored that. And it made me even further connected. And it sort of gave me this love of human beings as a whole. You know, what they do on a daily basis and the connections that they have with each other. Tell me about how you found your subjects or or how they found you. Um, The first subject was uh, someone that I knew as an acquaintance. Pamela, who was the second subject, uh, she actually reached out to me through Instagram through me posting on Instagram about the stories. And then my third subject was actually a a mom who has bipolar one, Amber, and her story, I've known her forever. Um, I was actually a witness at her wedding. I had no idea that she was bipolar, none whatsoever. And she reached out to tell me and I said, are you willing to tell the story to other people? Because I think it needs to happen. And she said, yes. Tell me about, you know, you had your own experiences we talked about earlier about when you were wounded and, you know, the the physical challenges, the emotional challenges that you had. How did that help you in terms of being able to tell these people's stories, even though you may have not been under exactly the same circumstances, but that you had faced similar challenges of your own? I think that having the experiences that I did, I think that a lot of people who know me really well and know about my own life experiences see a level of strength and they kind of go, Oh wow. You know, she went through this, but still positive, still here, Mm -hmm. still (laughs) kicking. So I think that having those experiences and, and sharing them with my subjects who are going through very similar things, there's a level of trust that's there that this is a person who doesn't just sympathize. Who's actually empathizing and has been in their shoes. So there is an understanding and a trust that occurs when we're shooting, when we're talking about shooting, when I'm getting to know them, when I'm telling the story, they trust me to be emotionally present, not just have a camera in my hands and snap a bunch of pictures that I'm present when taking images. And I think that that is reflected 
in the imagery that occurs during those sessions. And, and that trust has extended itself to moments where people have not wanted to continue, right? Mm-hmm. So, so yep. tell us about contending with, with that, because I'm sure that, you know, you get, so, you get invested to a certain degree and all of a sudden the person says they don't want to do it anymore for whatever reason. I had a situation like that where um, I had someone who had agreed, it was actually a soldier, um, and him and his wife had agreed to be a part of this project. And I'm not really sure what happened. I, I did a lot of pre-work and prep work leading up into the actual sitting down and, and documenting and telling the story, and they pulled out uh, last minute. And, of course, all that prep work, you know, I, I, can't, I can't do anything with it, mm-hmm. but that's part of it. You know, I have to respect along the way. I have to respect if people decide they don't want to tell their story. It doesn't matter how far we get into it. We get the whole thing done. doesn't matter. I respect the fact that they are not prepared for it and not prepared. And not everybody's prepared. When you, when you lay yourself open to someone coming in who's more than just a photographer, who's also a storyteller, who's really interested in what you have to say, that you know you can trust them. But you're laying yourself bare. You may not necessarily be prepared for the emotional outcome of that, and that's fine. Yeah. I respect that. So when did this uh, the interest in street photography come into play? Oh, wow. Okay. So <laughs> um, I came to New York in 2014 to photograph Pamela uh, for the Grief and Grace Project. And a friend of mine who was also a photographer here, um, who lived in Brooklyn, said, hey, let's, let's just go shoot. And I'm like, okay, sounds great. And I happened to run into, it was in 2014, the Millions March. And I was shooting Strictly Film then, and I just, I was fascinated by it. And I'm pretty fearless, so I was down inside the crowd and on the street. And, and uh, we went back to develop the images, and he said, wow, you have, you know, you have a gift for this. So... I started traveling. I was going back and forth between Houston and um, I went to California a lot to LA, Hollywood and New York. And every time I did, I would get out on the street and start photographing and something just clicked. So I've only been doing it, you know, a few years and something about it. And then in September of last year, in 2016, I was traveling to New York um, to spend my birthday. And I was shooting with other street photographers, getting to know people. And I took one day by myself and rode the train. And I was walking through New York, photographing, had my headphones on, listening to music. And I just, that was the moment that I knew that was it. Because it's a completely different feeling than doing portraits or doing documentary. Mm -hmm. It's something completely different. And what is that for you? For me, I felt incredibly fearless that here I was in the largest city that changes so constantly because New York changes all the time. And I could be here and I could tell this story and people are so fascinating and and that was it for me. And that's when I decided to move to New York. So what did you find most challenging about working on the streets as compared to doing the documentary work or doing the music work? What, what, what was it, you know, what was it about it that really sort of took you to another level in terms of what you were able to do with the camera? For me, it was the ability 
some people photograph because there's such a different types of street photography. I mean, some people photograph their, they use full frontal flash and they're very, very in people's faces and that type of thing. And I think that my work is a little more quiet and contemplative. And I find those moments in between. And the biggest challenge for me really wasn't being out on the streets because I have no problem confronting people. I have no problem raising my camera. Um, but my work is very much about building that split second trust and that rapport because people, if you look at a lot of my photographs, a lot of them, people are staring right at me mm-hmm. and there's a recognition. Um, and I build that very quickly and it's a, it's a split second moment that happens. My biggest challenge was I don't think in street photography, there was a lot of that going on. So I was bringing in a completely different narrative and a completely different style that wasn't necessarily readily accepted at first among my peers. And that was my biggest challenge. My biggest challenge had nothing to do with being out on the streets and being able to confront people and being able to photograph and being able to capture the ever-changing landscape and the people. Um, It was actually dealing with, this is my style, this is what it is, is it going to be accepted by my peers? And by peers, are you talking about other street photographers or just other? Yes. Okay. Other street photographers. Which, as we mentioned before, we started rolling is largely dominated by guys. So, was that a, a p- yep. part of the issue there? It is. It's, it, it is an issue. It, it, it became an issue. It still is an issue. I mean, it. I think it's getting better. Um, it is a male-dominated genre. It is, um, and I think that. Inherently, whether we like it or not, male or male identifying and female or female identifying uh, photographers do tell a different story, do tend to tell a different story. They're coming from different places. But I think there's room in street photography for both sets of narratives. There's room. And I find it really amazing. Like for me, my collective, NYCSPC, Um, At first, I would say that they were probably a little reluctant, um, but I pushed (laughs) a little bit, (laughs) and it worked, and I get really incredible feedback, and they also feel, they've come into the realization that yes, um, there are a lot of really amazing female street photographers out there, women who are fearless and creative and produce these incredible images. And I think it's changing. I think that we're finally starting to see that change of this doesn't have to be a male dominated genre. Mm. That the, the female, you know, women in this genre are contributing and starting to find their voices and starting to speak up as well. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Um, For me, that one photographer would be, um, her name is Katie Jet Walls. She is, I'm actually uh, opening up her Instagram right now. So um, she's actually located in Washington, D.C. Okay. She was, she's a photographer who photographs, um, she owns a, I think it's called Red Turtle. So she photographs families and kids and things like that. But her street work and her documentary work 
blend so well. And she's in Washington, D.C. And this woman is a powerhouse. She will go anywhere. She will do anything. And she creates these projects, these incredible, insightful, thoughtful projects. And her imagery is thoughtful. And I think that's somebody that really people should look out for. Well, I look forward to checking out her work. Tracy, thank you so much for making the time for me, for me today. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed talking with you. I enjoyed it too. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for your continued support of The Candid Frame. If you haven't already, please take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. Your ratings and comments help people to discover the great conversations like the one you heard today. Thanks to Jonas Borchers for his five-star review. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame, or you'll find a link in the show notes and The Candid Frame website. Or if you just want to make a one-time contribution to the show, you can do so via PayPal by clicking on our donate button on the Candid Frame website or in the show notes. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows. It's the fastest and most convenient way to hear and save any of the great interviews we've presented here at TCF. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at Ibarianx. And this is Ibarianx, and this is The Candid Frame.